it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. If you're listening to Investing for Beginners, then you probably care about money and learning how to make a good relationship with your finances. Everyone's Talking Money is hosted by money wellness expert and certified financial planner, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money. Hear about the money topics you need to know, such as ways to train your brain to reach money goals, why you should ditch your budget and start tracking your cash, and everything you need to know about paying off student loans. Simple steps to start investing as a side hustle, ways to invest in rental real estate, how to overcome money trauma, and so much more. With over 900 episodes, there's a show for any and every money question you have. I'm a big fan of Shauna's as well. She has a relatable style and soothing voice that takes some of the stress surrounding money. Shauna really speaks to the listener and never ends in an episode without actionable tips. I recently listened to the episode, Stop Stressing Over Your Money, a simple budgeting solution, where she talks about her simple, easy one, two, three system for budgeting. It helped me a lot. Are you ready to learn everything about money that no one has taught you? Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a really fun show. We have a very special guest. We have Ian Castle, who's joining us. He's a full-time microcap investor, and he's the CIO of Intelligent Fanatics Capital Management. He is also the founder of microcapclub.com and a co-founder of the intelligentfanatics.com. So, Ian, thank you very much for joining us today. We're super excited to talk to you. Andrew, unfortunately, won't be able to join us today, but we're going to have a lot of fun and I promise to not ask too many stupid questions. So with that, Ian, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be here and speak to your audience about microcap investing. Awesome. Well, let's kind of start with maybe a 30,000 foot view of like your background. Like how did you get into investing? What was your first stock you bought? You know, it's maybe some of that background. Sure. So I'm from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So this is kind of Amish country in the United States. And it's kind of a unique place to be brought up. And that has nothing to do with about my background other than it's unique. And when I was a teenager, which was in the late 1990s during the dot-com kind of bubble or technology bubble, you know, I was a junior in high school and, and my parents kind of sat me down and they said, you know, we saved for you $20,000 for your college education. And 
this is all you're getting. So we want you to know now so you know where you want to apply and go to college. And, you know, that's just so that you can make the decision if you want to go into debt, if you want to go to a more expensive university, or if you want to go to a local community college, that's up to you. And so at the time, they introduced me to their financial advisor, and I opened up an account with that financial advisor and put that $20,000 into it. And I kind of slung it into two or three small cap tech names during the 1996, 1997. And, uh, you know, during that time period, as I'm sure many people can remember, you could have threw a dart at technology names and made money. And that was me as well. And so I took that 20,000 and turned it into about 120,000 by the time I graduated. You know, of course, with any big win earlier, early in your maturation as an investor, you kind of think that it's skill when really it's luck. And that was me as well. And so kind of seeing that capital go straight up, I was like, you know, I don't want to spend all of this going to a private college. I'll just go to the local community college commute and, you know, get a kind of part-time, full-time job. So I don't have to even drain any of this money that's in this stock brokerage account. And that's what I ended up doing. And I actually worked at an Edward Jones office, a financial advisor here locally, did that kind of 30 hours a week as I went to school full-time. And it was really there that the dot-com bubble crashed. So that was like, you know, 2001. And that $120,000 that I thought I was smart with turned into eight, you know, on the way down. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that was a, it was quite an experience. And a lot of those, so the irony of this is a lot of those small cap tech companies that I were in turned into micro caps coming down the other side and they turned into these small companies. And the other kind of lesson I learned during that experience was I was more or less a glorified secretary at that Edward Jones office answering phones. And during the bubble crash, you know, just dealing with people, dealing with their emotions, you know, I really thought, you know, kind of going into that crash that I was going to be a financial advisor and that's what I wanted to do. And then just going through the experience of having to kind of hold people's hands through that experience of the crash, it kind of taught me, I don't really want to do that. You know, investing is hard enough dealing with your own emotions, let alone those of other people. And it was really at that point in time or around that same time that, you know, I really got introduced to microcap investing. I actually ended up looking at my very first one with serious diligence, which wasn't very serious for me back then when I was a sophomore in university. So 2001, 2002, and that was XM satellite radio. And that would later merge with Sirius satellite radio, which we all know is in every car that you buy today. But back then it was a small microcap company with a story and no revenues. And I was, I just loved the idea of that company. You know, if you're old enough to remember terrestrial radio, you know, you drive 20 miles outside your area, you lose signal and you're trying to find a new radio station. It's a pain. And I just love the idea. I love the story. And that was the first company that I looked into and I saw that the CEO was presenting up in New York City, which is about a three hour bus ride from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I called the conference organizer and said I was Ian Castle with Castle Capital. Can I come to your event? They said yes. And when I was a sophomore in college, took a bus. The suit that I wore for my high school senior photos still fit. And I put that on with some fake business cards and headed to New York City. And long story short, you know, I was able to meet one-on-one with Hugh Panera, the CEO of XM Satellite Radio. You know, my eyes were as big as saucers. Just the ability to sit alongside a CEO of a public company was just, you know, it was amazing. And kind of came out of that meeting on the way home, took the 8000 I had left from the crash, bought XM Satellite Radio at $1.78 per share. And what happened next was the company actually started executing. It was all luck and it ended up going up 20x over the next 14 months. 
and wow. kind of made all the money back that I lost in the crash. And then some, again, thinking that that was skill and even though that was 150% luck, but I always point to that story that that meeting I had with that CEO is really where the love affair with microcap investing began because it was just the ability for an idiot like me to actually sit alongside the table of an executive and actually feel like you get an edge, you know, the qualitative right. aspect of investing. So that's kind of where my path and journey began. And then from there, you know, because of the experience at that Edward Jones office, I made it a goal to be a private full-time investor as quickly as possible. And through some luck and some skill, you know, over the next six, seven years, was able to kind of cut the cord of some consulting I was doing, the depths of the GFC, you know, which is 2008, 2009 financial crisis, and become a private full-time investor at that point in time. Wow. That's awesome. I mean, that's a great story. You learned a lot through that, those ups and downs, didn't you, of the, you know, not only the skill involved, but the luck involved and also the emotions that are involved. I'm 42, but I feel like I've kind of lived in dog years when it comes to realizing like the emotions of investing, the volatility with investing, because, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, but, you know, microcap investing, it's a volatile area, you know, and so the highs are high, the lows are low. And so you kind of go through those extremes, you know, over and over again, kind of learn those lessons really quickly. And I think, you know, that's kind of the way I learned it by doing, by kind of losing my money over and over again and making it back and losing it and making it back. And yeah. uh, that's, how I, that's how I kind of learned the craft of microcap investing. And then when I became a private full-time investor in 2009, I had my own blog for a while, but I realized that it would be really cool to kind of create a website, which is now microcapclub.com, which I just wanted to kind of bring together all of the people that were intelligent and sophisticated and smart in my niche of investing and have them post their ideas on a private forum, you know, because I wanted to see the idea flow, what other people were looking at and why. And so that's kind of where Microcap Club originated. And today it's probably with the best brand in Microcap Investing, where we have 200 of the best Microcap investors from across the planet just on there talking about what they like and why. And that's all it is today. And that was kind of a pet project that's still a passion project of mine. And it's still a great tool for my personal investing. Awesome. All right. So maybe we could back up for just a second. So when we talk about micro cap investing, what does that mean to you? And what would that mean to people that are listening? Sure. So if you look at all global stocks, like every publicly traded stock that exists on the planet, there's about 70,000 of them. And about 65% of them would be defined as micro cap stocks. And that would be a market capitalization. Some people say it's less than 500 million market cap. Other people say it's less than 300 million market cap. But the main point here is that most of the public companies that exist are small companies you've never heard of because they're so small. They're so illiquid. They have no institutional following. There's no analysts that cover them. And for that reason, it's a very inefficient marketplace to look at. I mean, some of these companies that are microcaps, I mean, no joke, they probably would even be the largest company in your small town. You know, these are, you know, five employees, 25 employees, they're 2 million in revenue, and there might be 20 million in revenue. It's basically a small business that just happens to have a ticker symbol that you can buy in your Schwab account. I guess what would be the biggest you would go in market cap and what would be the smallest you would go? So even though I've been doing this for a long time, I mean, I would say the the biggest one in my portfolio today 
is uh, about a 320 million market cap. And to kind of size that up, I mean, that's a healthcare company. That's a, a $60 million revenue company growing 30% a year. You know, that's just turned profitable. You know, they have a hundred employees to kind of give you a little size and scope of what that business looks like. But I also have a company in my portfolio that is an eight, that's eight million market cap. That is a, you know, $5 million revenue company that makes $500,000 a year that I think can continue to just to grow, you know, 20, 30% and make more money every year, you know, and ironically enough, uh, maybe to put a bow on this microcap topic, you know, when you actually look at the best performing stocks globally, you know, there's actually some research done by Jenga Investment Partners, which is an institution out of the UK. And they looked at all global equity outperformers over the last 10 years. And what they found was that of all global equities that went up a thousand percent or more over the last 10 years, 87% of those originated out of the microcap arena, 87%. And what was also interesting was that 82% of those are profitable companies. You know, it's not the story stocks. It's not the next AI thing that's making a splash. It's simply what multi-baggers really are in general are simply small businesses that continue to grow, earn more money and not dilute, meaning they don't have to raise capital, you know? And so it's simply a business that can go from 10 million in revenue, again, a small business to 30 million in revenue and go from call it a couple million dollars in earnings to five or 6 million in earnings. That's a 10 bagger. That's a 15 bagger. You know, that's where a majority of those multi-baggers come from. They aren't meta. They aren't Apple. They aren't those types of companies. They're like fairy tales. You know, when you look at the size, the scope, the scale of those businesses, the amount of employees they have, the reach. And the nice thing for all of us is, you know, a majority of multi-baggers that occur are actually these just these small companies that no one's ever heard of. Right. Do you have a long-term mindset searching for safe compounders? So am I. And I'm investing my entire life savings with the picks from valuespotlight.com. Let's be honest here. Your sex life is important. It helps us feel more confident and boosts our happiness. But sometimes we struggle to perform. Our life gets in the way. This is where hymns can help. With their convenient and discreet online platform, you can get help for your erectile dysfunction from the comfort and privacy of your own home. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward conversations, just a simple, direct path to treatment that works around your life, not interrupts it. Invest in your health today. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatment options such as chewable hard mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online. No uncomfortable doctor visits. Answer a series of questions on their site and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you free. No insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time you join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIMSS subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash investing. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash investing for your personalized ED treatment options. Hymns.com slash investing. Hard mints are chewable compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety and effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. 
I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Yeah. You know, so a couple of things. One, it's kind of wild to me that I used to run a restaurant that we would do around 5 million a year in sales. And it's like, I would never have in a million years considered myself a public company CEO, but I could have been. <laughs> so that makes me chuckle for sure. When I, well, and I think that's why, you know, microcap investing as an investment class, you know, connects with people. Because mm-hmm. for a lot of people, they can connect with it. You already connected with it because you're right. like, wait a minute, I ran a five million dollar business, you know, I, right. you know. And so when I when I tell talk to people about it, whether it's people in your audience, I mean, it's something that you can understand. You know, you're not trying to find the next trillion dollar company. Right. You know, your next great multi bagger stock could be the business you run today, which is kind mm-hmm. of the irony of it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I think a lot of people don't realize this, but you know, all maybe not all, but most companies, a lot of companies, start off in the microcap world, Berkshire Hathaway, for example, was, you know, a very small company. Now look at it. You know, it's, yeah. just, you know, it's, it's a global beast, but yeah, it's amazing. And I think kind of to your point, Amazon, if that was to 10 peg from where it is now, it would be what the global GDP <laughs> just right. because of the size. So yeah, this, the idea of that. So I guess what makes investing in microcaps different than investing in larger companies, whether they're you know, a Danaher or whether it's a Google? Well, I think it would be the same as analyzing a small private company versus a large private company. You know, these are small, impressionable businesses, you know, and when it comes to public companies, unlike the larger companies that you look at, like an Apple that have, or a Target that has 39 analysts covering it, and it's 83% institutionally owned, these companies, there's no one following it. There's no analysts covering it. There's very little, if any, institutions that own the stock, which is just a fancy way of saying you have to do the work. You have to do the independent research. You have to form your own independent conviction if you do buy something, you know, and there's no one else to blame, you know, but you. And certain people are afraid by that. 
or they're energized by the fact that they they're willing to do that. And just like a lot of things in investing, you make the most money a lot of times by just driving through the fears of what other people aren't willing to do. And that's pretty much what microcap investing is. And where a lot of people go wrong with microcap investing. And unfortunately, it's also why it has such a negative, I don't know, the financial media here in the US especially, they like to paint the whole space as this uninvestable kind of wasteland of small, slimy, sleazy companies that shouldn't be public, you know, that type of thing. And the reason that is like most of the companies that do make the headlines are negative headlines. You know, maybe it's a fraud or a failure or whatever. But ironically enough, I would say that there's probably less failure in microcap investing than there is in venture capital. You know, there's probably just as much failure, if not more, in just private small businesses in general. You know, it's just that these companies are public. So they're just out front, so to speak. And so what I like to tell people is, you know, when it comes to microcaps, the subset of companies, if you you get rid of a lot of the risk if you just focus on the ones that are profitable, that actually have real businesses. You know, I think around 85% of companies lose money that are microcaps. So there's 15% of these companies that actually make money. And usually my first advice is just to focus on those because that'll cut out a lot, you know, 95% of the issues you're going to have if you just focus on the profitable real businesses that exist here. It doesn't mean that you're guaranteed to make money or anything, but you know, just like everything in life, it's harder to lose money if uh, you're already profitable. And it's even harder to lose money if you don't have any debt, you know, so it's right. kind of look for financially robust, small businesses, you'll do probably decently, you know, as a, as a starting point. Right. So I guess does the the value versus growth, you know, debate happen in the microcap world as well? Or is, is that something that's more, uh, you know, bigger companies that people focus on? Well, you know, it's a great question because I get asked quite a bit, like, well, you know, where, what's the next microcap stock or, you know, tell me about some ideas. Or you have the same flavors of investing in microcap as you do in large cap. You know, you have value, you have growth, you have story stock, you have oil and gas companies, you have life science companies, you have all those same flavors that you have up in large cap land down here in microcap land. And so, you know, each one of us microcap investors, you know, I have my own flavor of how I invest. It's going to be different from another microcap investor you talk to. And there's several, you know, kind of fund managers I know that focus on this space. They're all incredibly different, you know, and I think that's the beautiful thing about investing in general. You don't have to invest the same way. You know, you can find somebody almost on opposing sides of the spectrum of any type of investing and find a successful investor. And that's what makes it kind of unique, you know, investing in general. And it's the same thing that we said down here in microcap. So to your to actually answer your question, yeah, you still see that kind of value to growth kind of um, debate going on, if you will, because you can find a lot of just cheap stocks that are trading below book value or below cash. And then you're always also find things that, you know, can grow 50% a year that are profitable and it's more towards the growth end of the spectrum. Right. And yeah, you find all those things. Okay. That's interesting. If somebody wanted to start learning about these different companies, how would you suggest people, I guess, A, start to source ideas and then B, how do you start to kind of, you know, like you said, do the work, you know, do the research and try to find out as much as you can about these potential investments? You know, we actually have a public YouTube video up. We sort of did a one hour course on kind of a beginner's guide to researching microcap stocks. So if any of your listeners just go to YouTube, put in microcap club and with a beginner's guide to researching, it'll probably be the first thing that pops up and you'll find that video there. 
But I think the way you find them, it's really a, a combination of things. I mean, obviously, I could tout Microcap Club because it is a, a, an amazing idea generator. That's why it was created. So on that site, I mean, when you think about it, you have 200 experienced microcap investors profiling new ideas. And each month, we kind of highlight in a monthly update, these are the new ideas. And it's usually 15 to 20 a month of just new microcap ideas. And it's across all those flavors of investing we just talked about. That's a great idea generator just in itself. Some people, some of the best people, including what we do at our fund, is literally go A through Z. You know, kind of the old Warren Buffett approach, going like literally looking at every single one, because that's the only way you know you're not missing anything. You know, other people, they use screens depending on their investment strategy. So if they're a more of a deep value investor, they might do a quantitative screen based on financials. I think over time, as you get into the space and the longer you go, you create relationships and you have your own network of investors that you speak to and you talk to about ideas, you know, just like I do over the years. And that becomes a greater, greater source of idea generation over time is that network, you know, just like it becomes your greatest asset as an individual or a business person, like those relationships that you build over years of reciprocation and trust, you know, they become your ultimate asset. And that's the same thing with microcap investing as well. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. That's awesome. So I guess those are all fantastic resources, obviously. And if I was to look at the financials of the company, you mentioned earlier, generally, there's no analyst coverage. Does that mean that they don't do quarterly calls then? That sounds like a really dumb question. No, it's not out loud. (laughs) No, it's a great question. I would say... It really depends. Like, so if you look at microcap companies, let's just say sub 300 million market cap. So the whole space, there's a huge difference between a 300 market cap, 300 million market cap and a 20 million market cap. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like there's a huge difference between a $5 million revenue company and a $100 million revenue company, mm-hmm. you know, and I call like that one on the 5 million or less like a hustle. You know, it's sort of a two or three person operation and you can build something from zero to you know, five, six million in revenue, and it can still just be a hustle. And, but to get to 50 million in sales, 100 million in sales, and especially going from like 1 million in earnings to 10, that's a real business. You're going to have to have a real management structure, real management depth, a real board, a real culture, hopefully, you know, inside that company to get to that scale. And so, you know, I just wanted to start out by saying there's a huge difference between looking at the larger end of microcap and the smaller end of microcap, which also kind of makes it so unique too, because even inside the microcap, you know, there's different varieties of sizes and scales. But it also what makes it fun is, you know, you already pointed out earlier in the conversation. I mean, most 
of the best performing stocks ever originated out of this arena. Berkshire Hathaway was a small microcap stock when you know Warren Buffett took it over in the sixties, and you know Walmart was a microcap when it IPO'd. Intuitive Surgical was a microcap. Netflix was a microcap. You know, Celgene before it got acquired was a microcap. You can kind of go down the list of all these companies. Mm-hmm. And the other cool part about microcap investing is most of the best public markets investors ever started at microcap as well because of these qualitative trait of just inefficiency. You know, Buffett started here, Lynch started here, Joel Greenblatt mm-hmm. started here. And it's because this is where the inefficiency is. I mean, it's it might be the only investment class publicly and privately where the smaller investor has the advantage, you know even among small business investment. Like, so if you look at microcap investing, small private equity, if you're buying a small private business, that ecosystem and venture capital, those three things, you know, microcap's the only one where, you know, if you just have a little bit of money, you have the whole ecosystem to your, you can see every stock that exists. You can decide that which one you want to invest in. If you're in venture capital, you'd have to go to the right school. You have to know the right people. You have to work at the right firm to get those best deals. You're not seeing Facebook early on, you know, you're going to be the last person on that list, you know, here in microcap, like those two, like VC and private equity, they're still institutionally grounded, you know, where microcap is retail grounded, you know, the retail, small retail investor has the advantage. So that's what has always drawn me to it. It sounds really intriguing to me. And so I guess another question, maybe a dumb one is if you were a new investor, like if you, this is like, okay, I want to start tomorrow. Would you, is microcap a place that you think that they could play? Or is that something that maybe you need a little more experience before you can start? And not necessarily from the knowledge part of it, but maybe more the emotional part of it. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I realized as you were asking your question, I didn't answer your other question, which was about earnings calls. What I meant to say was on the smaller end, I would say smaller end of microcap, there's very many that don't have earnings calls. They might, there's very many that don't even put out press releases. They just put out like their quarterly filings and that's it. Yeah. And like, as you get bigger, then they start putting out press releases. They start having earnings calls, you know, so there's a big difference between that, that smaller end of my cap and the larger end. So I, I didn't mean not to answer that question you asked okay. previously. Yeah. <laughs> that's um, and what was your new question? My new question was if they're listening today and they're like, okay, I really like what Ian is, is talking about. And this sounds really appealing to me, but I've never invested before. I haven't even opened my brokerage account yet. Would this be an area that you feel like new investors could get into from the get-go? Or do you think it'd be something maybe they would be better served to start with maybe larger companies and then move into this arena. And I'm thinking more about the idea of the volatility that you were mentioning earlier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that could be really hard for investors to deal with experienced investors. And I, I just wonder if new investors would struggle with that even more. I think so. I think it makes sense to start larger. I also think it, it's really important to understand the language of business, which is accounting. You know, you really should take a course or two or read a few books so you understand how to read an income statement, a balance sheet, cash flow statement. And I know you had Brian Ferraldi on your program. He has a pretty good course too. So I mean, I think think it's important to understand the language of business. So I would definitely learn accounting before you even enter this world, you know, Mm -hmm. and it probably is a good idea to start larger because the volatility will be less. I mean, the I'm just kind of crazy when you think about volatility because I'm. I know you probably heard this metric already, but like probably the largest, most robust 
business in the world, which is Berkshire Hathaway, still has 50% peak to trough movements, you know, 50%. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just think about what small microcap companies are. It's going to be a lot more than that. And so, you know, you have to be willing to kind of go through that volatile ride. Mm-hmm. And then when you start out in microcap investing, you know, prepare to lose money. Unfortunately, the best teacher oftentimes is loss. You know, no gain around that. No, no, there really isn't. And that's one of the things about the market is nothing's for free and there is a price and (laughs) Mr. Market will come collect from time to time. Yeah. I think a lot of risk can be taken out if you just focus on that subset of profitable businesses. You know, a lot of the pain and frustration and agony comes from investing in the story stock or you get some glossy you know, brochure in the mail, it says that company XYZ is the next Amazon. Well, we all know it's not. It's probably going to go down. In fact, I used to collect the hard mailers I would get that were pushing penny stocks out of my house. And I had this Excel spreadsheet. I think I had like 45 of them and I tracked the performance from the day I received it. <laughs> and I think literally 90, well, I think all of them went down 99%, like within, you know, 12 months, you wow. know? And unfortunately, that's why people get like a bad taste in their mouth with microcap mm-hmm. investing because their first entree into the space was some glossy hard mailer they got in the mail or, you know, something that um, email that got forwarded to them, you know, promoting something. And that's, that's the bad side of microcap. You know, those are the ones you don't want to invest in. Right. So why is there more volatility in microcap land than larger cap land? There's more volatility because these equities are illiquid. So it's really the illiquidity in the stocks to give you an example I own stocks that literally trade $5,000 worth of stock a day. Okay. Okay. So just think if I wanted to go buy $10,000 worth of stock, it's probably going to take it up a hundred percent. Right. You know, or if I want to sell $10,000 worth of that stock, it's going to take it down, you know, X, Y, Z. Right. So that's why these things are volatile. It's the illiquidity. And it's also that illiquidity that keeps institutions out of this ecosystem. Mm. So it's also the benefit because it keeps the larger pools of capital out because they're, it's, it's a waste of their time to be bothering with companies that trade this thinly. Right. They have too much money to put to work. That makes a lot of sense. So I guess the idea that your stomach needs to be stronger maybe than your IQ to invest in the microcap space, would that be correct? Yeah, you need a very strong stomach. And I think it's even more important to disconnect the stock price in some regards from the business and really kind of create a valuation of what you think that business is worth. So you can disconnect from the volatility mm-hmm. and take advantage of the volatility. You know, when something like every year I have, I wake up to a situation where one of the holdings in my companies are down 40% pre market. And it's mainly because somebody woke up on the wrong side of their bed and decided, I want to get out of this illiquid <laughs> stock all at once, mm-hmm. you know, and that's where you take advantage of it. You know, right. if the business hasn't changed and the business is performing similarly to the other side too, like you'll randomly all of a sudden this stocks up a hundred percent a year and it pulls forward where you thought the company would be in three years to the today. And obviously you want to take some off and there's circumstances too. So you right. use the volatile nature of the equity to your advantage. That's awesome. You know, that kind of brings me to you recently wrote this great article about that kind of very idea of averaging down. Could you kind of explain maybe your kind of idea behind that and maybe some of the keys that can help you average down better? Yeah, yeah. I think averaging down is a skill. And, you know, I think that some of the biggest mistakes I've made were averaging down just to average down. 
and especially in micro cap stocks is more important that when you average down, you're not throwing good money after bad. And so, you know, I have some rules that I kind of set up for myself, which I still break. And every time I break them, I realize these are rules and I shouldn't break them, you know, but I can, <laughs> it's okay. We're all human. We still make mistakes. Yes. But, you know, mainly I want to disconnect the business from the stock. And the only time I want to average down is when the equity is going down, but the business is accelerating, you know, when the business is doing well, you know, and that business is a robust business. It's profitable. It doesn't have any debt. It's, you know, has firm fundamental underpinnings. And those are the, really the only times that you want to be averaging down into a microcap stock. Mm-hmm. Um, so often, I mean, I can probably point on both hands, you know, how many times I've lost a lot of money just because, you know, I was emotionally connected to the story of the company or whatever the case may be. And I just kept averaging down because it was down another 20%. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're down 60%, then 80%. And you're like, what am I doing? You know, and then you <laughs> finally sell it to the person that's probably going to make money on it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I mean, I think it's important to have rules, you know, set up. And so I wrote an article I guess the last week or the week prior on when to average down. And it's just kind of a really simple, kind of easy kind of method that I think would help a lot of people. Because I do think if you can average down effectively, you know, it can be your biggest asset as well as an investor to take advantage of that volatility. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I haven't played in the microcap space yet, but during the pandemic, that was one of the things that I tried to take advantage of when the market dropped because. There are a lot of fantastic businesses like Visa, which is one of my favorite holdings, that it fell 30, 50% in a month. And how could I not take advantage of that? Because, you know, I know the popular phrase on Twitter is, you know, to buy the dip, but I wasn't trying to buy the dip. I was like, this is, you know, the tide has gone out on a great company and everything else around it is still awesome. So why wouldn't I buy more of this? Yeah, it's funny how the emotions and psychology of stock price movements play into your mind too. It's mm-hmm. especially when the businesses are robust, like something like, you know, Visa or Master, you know, all those types of businesses that you just mentioned. Like when you're looking at those high quality businesses, it's funny how you loved the stock when it was double the current price, but you hate it and are making excuses on why not to buy it here when it goes right. down fifty percent. Right. You know, when the business is the same. You know, and it's just like the psychology of stock price movements. Like we all want to buy when a stock doubles, 10 times more people want to buy it than if it gets cut in half. Right. So it's, it's just fascinating. That's, yeah. I mean, to, to use the Morgan Housel book title, it's, you know, same as ever. You know, it's right. the way it's always been. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's, the more our technology improves, you think that we would get air quote better, but we're still all wired the same as we were 150 years ago. So we still do the same dumb things. Well, and especially, I mean, what's ironic about it too is, you, know, you think that larger pools of capital are smarter. Mm. Like they, they're the ones taking advantage of it. But, you know, companies like that, they're moving down because the smarter money and the larger money is doing the same things you're doing. Right. You know, they're pushing those things. Those equities lower. Right. So. Yeah, exactly. It always kind of amazes me how much the narrative can drive the price. Meta and Netflix, are, I think, are two great examples of, you know, they're going to zero, they're dead, they're, you know, and, and everybody hates it now. You know, now they're back you know, bigger than ever and yes. everybody loves them. And now everybody wants to buy them and nobody wanted to touch it when that would, would have been the best time to touch it. Yep. No, exactly. Yep. It's, it's kind of fascinating. So what are your ideas about valuation? Like when you think about valuing companies, what does that mean to you? 
When I think about valuation, I look at a business and try to understand the size of that business and what it could become within three to five years, usually three or five years, depending on the type of business it is. And that's kind of how I kind of create a valuation framework because I don't want to go out too far because these are small businesses and they change and it's a difficult thing to do. And so it's a lot of it is just to find a 10 bagger stock in microcap, first find a company that can double based on fundamental underpinnings. You know, and that's how I think about with my flavor of investing, what I'm trying to find. Like I'm mainly trying to find unique businesses that are one of one businesses that are small and public. I'm not interested in finding businesses where there's a whole bunch of me too copycats or, you know, another UCAS company that is basically marketing something a little bit different, trying to gain a few more customers that way when really they're all mm-hmm. selling the same thing, just with different lipstick on it. I want to find like truly unique businesses that are scarce. I love the idea of scarcity. You know, because I think it's kind of like I'm going to find a Picasso painting, you know, where there's only one of them and it's a desirable asset. And I know the institutions are going to come for this company at some point because it's a scarce asset that's growing rapidly, that's profitable, and they will overpay for this eventually. I want to find something that's undervalued today that can get overvalued tomorrow. Maybe not tomorrow, but in in three or four years, you know. And so that's really... And then also you kind of layer on, you want to find companies that have a balance sheet that can endure and weather a storm and they can get through a recession. I want to find ones that obviously have ownership from the management team, insider ownership, founder. A lot of times they're founder led, but not always. I want them to have skin in the game and have to live with the consequences of their decisions. And that last kind of the four things is valuation centered, which is can this business double or can the stock double? based on kind of fundamental underpinnings. So kind of like trying to find 25% Kager doesn't mean that we're always going to hit that, but that's the goal, you know? And when you put thousands of microcaps down that qualitative filter and quantitative filter from very unique business, profitable, great balance sheet, founder-led, is trained in evaluation that I think can at least double in three years. You know, what comes out the bottom is tens of companies, not hundreds. And then that, that starts the diligence process more deeply into what comes out the bottom of that funnel. When you think about due diligence for you, is that how long a process will it be for you? Is it something that you, hey, I love this in a week, you're pulling the trigger, or is it a longer process that you kind of put it through its, you know, the ringer to see if this is going to be something you want to own six months from now? I know for me, the actual time it takes to get to a buy decision has gotten quicker. And it's because the older I get, the more I know what I'm looking for. You're kind of more of like an art collector. You know, where you're looking through art catalogs or you're look, going to auctions and you know what you're looking for and you're just waiting to see it. And when you see it, you can act quickly. And that's kind of where I, I think, I, I oftentimes think like the actual diligence process takes a lot longer when you're trying to figure out who you are. You know, and now that I kind of know what I'm looking for, I can, I can make a decision pretty quick. It's still going to involve doing you know the normal types of work and talking to management but i can pull the trigger pretty quick when i kind of see you know those main things that i'm looking for you know at least put an initial position on because the one thing that makes microcap also unique is discovery is important getting to an idea quicker is important because these are illiquid stocks you know me getting to an idea two or three investors later might mean paying 100 percent more you know so discovery is still important you know, and so you kind of weigh the risks of taking another two months longer to do something versus 
well, let's just buy a little bit now. This passes all the broad brush strokes. You know, we can do research as we go, you know? And so that's more so probably how I've evolved over the last 10 years because I can, I know what I'm looking for and I can pull the trigger quicker. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's probably a really smart way to do it. I guess the next question then would be, when you think about portfolio and entering positions, like, do you have, you know, an ideal amount of companies you think a microcap investor should own? And when you start, how do you generally like to start? Do you start smaller and let them and build into them? Or do you, you know, okay, I love this 15%. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's a good question. And I think the part about position sizing and the amount of positions is a personal one. You know, like I've always been concentrated you know, in 10 or less stocks. And quite honestly, when I was building my capital as a private investor, you know, it was five or less stocks. And I've just always been comfortable with that volatility. But that's not to say that should be right for anybody else. You know, the one thing that history has taught us is, you know, you can be in six stocks like Buffett, or you can be in 1200 stocks like Peter Lynch was. You know, there's many ways you can do this. There's no right way for you except the right way for you. And so for me, when it comes to microcaps, though, it, it does depend on like the illiquidity profile of the, of the company. You know, I now manage, you know, millions of dollars. So you can understand like shoveling and it's genuinely capacity constrained if you're concentrated in microcap because there's only so much money you can shovel down a basket of illiquid things. And so some of these things might trade hundreds of thousands of dollars a day, and some of them might trade $5,000 a day, like the one I just told you about. And so the one that trades five or $10,000 worth a day, it takes you a month or two to acquire a position. And it might be a smaller position because it's taking you forever to buy it. But if the risk reward is right, you know, even taking that on as a smaller position is worth the time and effort because the upside is there, Mm -hmm. you know? And so with things that you start out with that are more liquid, you know, you can start bigger because you can buy more, you know. And so it really depends on the type of situation. You know, if it's one of those hustles, kind of in the smaller end of the bucket, you know, I'm those are like kind of the smaller positions. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like the farm team in baseball. You know, you're trying to see how they perform. You give them some playing time when you call them up to AAA or whatever and see if they play well. And if they play well, you move them up. You bump up the position size. And if they don't, you move them back down, you know. And so that's one thing that's, probably important to hit on and you may we're going to get to this anyway but like with microcap investing you can't coffee can these things you know you can't just put them under your mattress and hope for the best because that's the quickest way you'll go broke you know and so these are small impressionable emerging evolving companies and a lot of times these companies aren't won't evolve in good ways they'll evolve in bad ways and you just need to have your pulse on the financials and the fundamentals of that business to understand like when you should be holding when you should be buying, when you should be selling. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how does it work for portfolio turnover then? Is that something that it 25% of your portfolio turns over regularly or is it more or less? It's probably more like 50% or more. And a lot of times it's not... And again, it depends how you invest. I have a lot of friends that have 50 positions. Again, I have 10 but the way my portfolio is structured, it might be easy to visualize is like the top two or three positions are big, bulky positions. The farm team that the six or seven that are underneath them are smaller. Mm-hmm. And so that a lot of the turnover happens in those smaller ones. You know, I'm trying to see who the next talented group is to bring up to the major leagues. 
you know, and so a lot of the turnover happens in those smaller ones. So that's the way I would envision that, at least for me. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I kind of like that idea. I mean, I'm a big baseball geek. So I mean, that you're hitting my sweet spot <laughs> with that. I love that idea. So I guess when you're thinking about building a portfolio, do you think that micro cap investing can exist along investing in large caps? Or is this something that maybe, you know, you need to really focus on and do this and not do the large cap or vice versa? Can they kind of coexist, I guess? Yeah, they can definitely coexist. I think most of the people I talk to have a micro cap portion of their portfolio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they also have Google and Meta and whatever, you know, right. whatever else Berkshire and that list too. You know, right. most people have even for people that invest with me directly, it's like I tell them like this should be no more than 10% of your portfolio. Like it's 100% of mine, but mm-hmm. I'm just used to this space. It's I live right. and breathe this. But for a normal person, it should probably be 10% or less. Okay. All right. That makes a lot of sense. I think one of the things that I've always been kind of curious about with microcaps is what is the difference between microcaps and like the penny stocks? Are they, is it the same thing or are they different or how does that work? Well, I think it's primarily the same thing. I think the definition of penny stock is simply a stock that's under $5 per share. And so it's a little bit slightly different because that's just a price component. Right. You know, you can have $50 microcaps. You know, they just have less shares outstanding. Mm-hmm. So I think the penny stock kind of label is just strictly to mean anything that trades under $5 per share. Right. Okay, that makes sense. You know, I know that the penny stocks, you know, can get a bad rap for sure. And I know you mentioned earlier that that's sometimes what people will associate it with. I think the way that you're investing is definitely not that way at all. I guess one of the things that I'm curious about is we get a lot of questions about microcaps, but I think people are coming at it from the idea because the company sells a share for $6 a share, they think that that makes it cheap and they don't understand the difference between value and price. and they're really only looking at it because they think they can buy, you know, a hundred dollars worth of this company because it's trading at six dollars a share. I guess how do we help educate people and move them kind of away from that idea that the price is not equal cheap? Yeah, you don't want to look at the price means nothing. You want to look at the enterprise value of the business mm-hmm. or the market cap, you know, because you can have I can show you a stock that trades at twenty cents that has a 200 million market cap. And then I can show you a stock that trades at $60 that has a 200 million market cap. You know, <laughs> and the difference is the amount of shares outstanding. Right. You know, and so you want to look at the market cap. And again, it's based on valuation. Then you can look into the, if there are earnings, you know, mm-hmm. figure out if this stock is actually cheap or not. Right. Even I think Sirius Satellite Radio was always like a four or $5 stock, but it was like a $10 billion market cap. You know, so that would be like, you know, under that $5 level, but it was still a multi-billion dollar market cap, you know, and a lot of people would, back when, when XM was there and Sirius was there, Sirius was always at like three or $4 and XM was at 40 and they were like the same market cap, but that one was at three or four and everybody would perceive it as, you know, a cheaper one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's just not how it works. So always look at the market cap. That's great advice. Thank you. So I got two questions left for you. So the first one is... What are the pros of investing in microcap type stocks and what are the risks of investing in those? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the pros are that you can find good value down here and you're not 
playing in the major leagues against institutions. And I don't mean that to mean that there's not smart people. There's a lot of people like me that are looking at all these companies as well, trying to find the next big one. But I do think that there's a huge competitive advantage to be able to find something small that's growing, that's profitable, that's not diluting, that can just simply do those things. And you're not taking on that much risk because, again, it's a small, profitable, growing business that institutions just have to wait in the sidelines and buy when that company gets a little bit bigger. You know, and that institutional discovery, when institutions start buying something, that's usually when it starts going from moderately priced to expensive, mm-hmm. you know, because you have these institutions all piling at the same time, right. you know, deciding that this is something they can buy that has the liquidity profile, they can buy it. And so what's often interesting is like you can be, you're in microcap, you're the tip of the spear of the discovery process. You know, it's almost like the astute retail investors duty is to find these things before the institutions do. And that's the way I view it. And then when they come in, it brings in greater and greater waves of capital that just you know propel the stock upward when you find one of those situations. Mm-hmm. But it's not easy. You know, if it was easy, I'd be on an island somewhere <laughs> not having a discussion with you. And so, uh, you know, I don't want to make it sound like this is easy to do. It's really hard. And it's continuing to be harder for me. Like, I'm not right all the time. You know, it's to use another baseball analogy. You know, it really is still about slugging percentage, not necessarily batting average. Batting average is important. And just because you swing and miss in something doesn't, you know, it's important that you're not losing all your money when you swing or miss, you know, mm-hmm. I can be wrong and still make money, you know, and that's really the ones you're trying to find where you were wrong about the upside, not wrong about the downside. Mm-hmm. And that's what mainly all astute investors have in common is they assess the downside more than their upside, you know, and they, and they position size accordingly that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are great insights. So what would be some, I guess, risks of investing in microcaps? I would say the number one risk as a microcap investor is dilution, you know, which is a fancy way of saying investing in companies that need to raise capital to survive. Because especially here in the US, it's just not easy for small public companies to raise capital. And when they do, it's usually very, very dilutive and it's hard for those equities to ever recover, mm-hmm. you know, if they raise capital the wrong way, which most of them do. And so I would, again, steer clear of the story stocks, steer clear that don't have of companies that don't have but sound business fundamentals. It's one of the first things I ask a management team when I talk to them on the phone, do you have to raise capital to execute your business strategy? You know, and just some of this is common sense, but it's hard to put into practice, you know, mm-hmm. but just stay away from companies that are burning money. You know, a lot of these story stocks that they don't have happy endings, unlike the ones you read to your kids. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> Those are great. Both sides are great advices or great ways to invest regardless of whether you're focusing on microcaps or whether you're focusing on other types of companies, you know, just avoid those risks and you'll do well over time. Yep. Yeah. For sure. Okay. So my last question is if you were not doing what you do today, what would you be doing? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> I don't even ever think about that to be honest. That's a good question, but I have no idea. Like my biggest so if you this is a funny statistic. So if you took all the microcap companies in North America, so US and Canada, rolled them up into a ball, the market capitalization of that, of the entire microcap ecosystem in North America is about the size of, well, it's an $800 billion market cap. So I don't know. That's a single company somewhere. I was going to say Google, but I think Google's even bigger than that. 
Yeah, so it shows how maybe Nvidia or Tesla or something like that. Exactly, and so that, that shows you how small this space is. And then if you take out of that eight hundred billion, probably twenty thirty percent of that eight hundred billion is owned by the founders or insiders of that company. So we're down to five hundred billion. And then maybe so maybe a hundred billion is owned by institutions towards the higher end of micro cap. So now we're down to like four hundred billion. You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> Apple has enough cash in their balance sheet to buy every microcap. <laughs> yeah, buy all of them. And so my biggest worry is that sub- I wake up and like Apple just buys out the entire microcap ecosystem and I'm out of it, out of a job. So that's <laughs> <laughs> so that's my sideways way of answering your question. I don't okay. know. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's a good statistic. I mean, especially kind of you know on the heels of you know Shohei Otani getting 700 million. Or to play baseball, I I was doing some math, and if he comes to bat 540 times in a season, he makes 127 thousand dollars in a bat. He would make wow. almost half a million dollars in four in a game if he bats four times. Yeah, like, that's, that's amazing. Kind of nuts <laughs> when you think yeah. about it. I'm not arguing whether he's worth it or not. It's just you know when you start throwing numbers around like that, it just becomes kind of nuts to think about. Well, it's going to be more nuts in another 10 or 20 years because I remember, remember like, uh, when A Rod had the first like $250 million yeah, 10 year oh deal. <laughs> I know. Yeah, exactly. Now, now look what we're talking about. Just right. think about what we're going to be talking about in another 10 years. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Who's going to be the first billion dollar man? Um, yeah. Yeah. Remember when Dave or Hearn was complaining about this guy making that much money? <laughs> now it's, now it's right. 10x that. You know? Yeah. 10x that. Yeah. <laughs> what a fool. All yeah. right. <laughs> Well, Ian, thank you very much for joining us today. I know people are going to get a lot out of this episode. I know I got a lot out of this episode and I'm looking forward to kind of diving into some of the things you were talking about. So if people want to find out more about what you're doing, the things that you are advocating for and how they can learn more like about microcaps, where should they go? Well, you can follow me on X or Twitter if you still call it that. It's my name, Ian Castle is my handle. Uh, you can go to microcapclub.com. I'm on there every day posting. You can also see 200 of the best microcap investors on the planet posting on that forum if you want to join it. If you don't want to join, you just want to learn. We have a lot of free resources on that site as well. Like I said, go to YouTube, put in Beginner's Guide to Researching Microcap Stocks into search there, and you'll find that free kind of one-hour tutorial on how to research microcap companies. And I think there's a lot of resources on the site on YouTube that you can find. And you know, again, it's not going to be an easy path to becoming an astute microcap investor. You you invest a small portion of your investable money into it and you learn as you go and you don't you're not afraid of losing a little bit of money as you learn. That's your, the price of tuition. That is the price of tuition. And those are fantastic resources and I will put all of those in the show notes with the links so everybody can easily find those. And I know I'm going to go check out the video as soon as we're done recording. So, <laughs> so Ian, thank you very much for joining us today. We really, really do appreciate it. And I appreciate you giving us your time and your knowledge. So thank you very much. No, thanks for having me on. You're Sorry. welcome. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. 
Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.